Welcome back to a brand spanking new episode of The Fear of God. This is, in fact, episode 30. Um, this is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse. Typically with me is Reed Lackey. Unfortunately, at the moment, he is perched atop a small statue, also called a bust, and quoth the lackey, nevermore. Just kidding. There you are, Reed. Welcome back to the show. How are you, my friend? <laughs> I'm doing quite well, doing quite well. I do. Uh, glad to be here. Glad to be having another conversation. Yes, I'm glad to uh, be having a conversation. I'm glad to see you. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I want to say I've really been enjoying these, the Universal Horror Series we've been doing um, last two weeks with Bride of Frankenstein and May. Um, you know, May is what it is. Definitely enjoyed Bride of, um, but we're going to move away from those for a string of episodes here um, in favor of a, a pretty special one. I know this is uh, today's episode or today's content we're talking about today is something, I mean, in the earliest stages of what would become this um, highfalutin podcast. Uh, I remember you talking about wanting to get around to this and spe Absolutely. Uh, specifically sort of the special element we're going to be employing as part of this episode. I remember you hatching that. Um, so why don't you fill us in, you know, what are we talking about today? We did just allude to it rather directly. What are we talking about today? What's sort of the special element associated with that? Certainly. So um, our, our content today uh, it delighted me for a number of reasons. Uh, as you already mentioned, when I was first conceptualizing the show, The Fear of God, I had a handful, maybe five or six episodes that I knew, hey, this would be an opportunity to do an episode about this, about this film about this uh, work of literature, about this musical number, you know, all kinds of things that I thought, hey, this would be beyond the spectrum of something that's necessarily talked about. And one of the ideas that I had was to talk specifically about this poem. Um, now, when we had a listener survey last year, towards the end of last year, I was delighted when I tossed this poem along with another selection of works of literature and we asked you the listeners which one would you like us to talk about and you also selected this poem what what do i mean by this poem i'm talking about edgar Allan poe's iconic late 19th century poem the raven um this is one of the most famous poems in all of literature you've read it if you haven't read it you've heard it somewhere or heard some sort of piece of it but we wanted when we talked about this um to approach things in a slightly different way than what we're used to, because being a poem, it has some opportunities for content that we don't necessarily get to indulge when we're talking about films. 
So what we're going to do is something very special, and this involves uh, officially uh, the uh, the first celebrity guest on the fear of God. So I, I want to tell you a little bit. I have a I have a buddy, Bill Oberst Jr. Um, he is uh, a very hardworking man in the horror genre. He has made over a hundred and fifty films and TV appearances in the last ten years alone. Um, he's most notable for. Uh, appearing as like a monster or a villain of some sort, he's a, he's appeared on shows like Criminal Minds, some of those procedural shows, Scream Queen. He has won an Emmy uh, for a short form internet video. You need to pause what you're doing right now and Google, or when you finish the episode, Google something called "Take This Lollipop," which sounds very silly. Uh, you need to have a Facebook in order to properly enjoy it, uh, and you need to. Input your Facebook information. I promise you it's safe, although it will not feel safe. But it, Google, take this lollipop, and you will see some of Bill's finest work, for which he has won an Emmy. But I met Bill at You know, a, you, say, you say that you, you allude to that sounding silly. I, I, I beg to differ. That, that does sound quite terrifying, just on the <laughs> Well... Take this lollipop. Like, it's, just, it's inviting violence and terror. It's threat. It's, it's like Mr. T. Like, I pity the fool who tries to take this lollipop. You know, I, I know... I haven't seen the thing, but I'm going to look it up with dread, uh, yeah. with dread in my spirit. It is, it is quite, quite freaky. Um, well, I met Bill at a Christian comics and pop culture convention. Actually, the same. It was a, a year prior to the same one that you and I attended this past year. Nice. And uh, we, Bill and I, struck up an immediate friendship. We began to um, talk occasionally. Every periodically, we would uh, call each other and just, you know, briefly chat about life and faith and all these different things. Uh, he's an interesting guy because he always plays these very monstrous and sometimes even demonic monsters and villains. Uh, but in person, he is one of the most gentle, humble, warm human beings you're likely to meet. He's very friendly, and he's an incredibly good actor. I, I think he's really a very talented man. If you're looking for some of his film work, I would point you to a horror film called Resolution, um, also one called The Retrieval that was a Civil War drama where he's really good in it. You could also check out, a, if you're into scary clowns, you could check out a film called Scary or Die to see, see some of his more intense uh, horror work, which was directed by Bob Badway, who's another uh, gentleman that I met at the convention and follows our show and is a really good guy. Um, so what we've got for you today, I reached out to Bill and... He was gracious enough to give us a Fear of God exclusive. So we have, for you, the listener, for your uh, listening enjoyment, we have got a new interpretive reading of The Raven by Emmy Award-winning actor Bill Oberst Jr. So we wanted to present this to you in a way that was fresh and something that, you, like I said, we might not have gotten the opportunity to do with a film. So what we want to invite you to do is we want to invite you to Kick back for a few minutes, um, relax, and we want you to hear this language, uh, the text of this poem, uh, freshly before we have a conversation about it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy uh, what I think is a very powerful uh, reading. It's, it's, it's exceptional. He's, 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 he's really good. Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven by Bill Erbos Jr. Enjoy.
upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore. While I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. To some visitor I muttered, tapping at my chamber door, only this and nothing more. Distinctly I remember it, it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow. Vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. The silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantasy. Fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, this it is, and nothing more." Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer, "'Sir,' Said I, or madam, truly, your forgiveness I implore, but the fact is, I, I was napping, and, and so gently you came rapping, and, and, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you, and here I opened wide the door. And darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there, Wandering, fearing, doubting, dreaming, dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the darkness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon I heard again a tapping somewhat louder than before. Oh, surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see, then, what there is in what this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when, with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not an instant stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched above a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling, by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore, though thy crest be shorn and shaven, I said, thou art sure no craven, ghastly grim and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore, tell me, tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's Platonian shore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. 
Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear disguise so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore, for who can help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door, with such name as Nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely on the placid bust, spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing further than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, Other friends have flown before. On the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, Nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken, doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock and store, caught from some unhappy master whose unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of nevermore. But the raven, still beguiling all my sad soul into smiling, straight, I wheeled a cushion seat in front of the bird in Boston door, and then, upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining, on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet violent lining with the lamplight gloating o'er, she shall press nevermore. Then methought the air grew denser. Perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by angels whose faint footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee, by these angels he has sent thee respite, respite in nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, oh quaff this kind nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore. Quote the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted, on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me, truly, I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, I implore, Quoth the raven, never more. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name Lenore. Clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked up starting, get thee 
back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul hath spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart. Take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul, from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor, shall be lifted nevermore. Fear of God exclusive reading of The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe, performed by Bill Oberst Jr. Thank you very, very much, Bill, for your time and efforts putting yes. that into us. Thank you, sir. So uh let's let's dive in now to this to this poem. Nathan, you obviously, being a well-educated man, you encountered this poem probably when the same way I did when you were in grade school. Uh <laughs> you got any you got any sort of uh personal memories or reflections about about this particular poem? Uh, nevermore. Um, you know, <laughs> believe it or not. Okay. So here's, here we'll do like we did. Um, was it Frankenstein or Dracula? No. Or the exorcist. One of those we did this with. So like, um, what is your pop culture reference for the Raven? And I'm going to steal what you might go for because honestly, it is the most burned into my brain and memory is the Simpsons Treehouse of horror. version of the raven like uh you know that i mean i'm sure i i read this as part of a literature class in high school or or even prior to that you know sort of like some of these universal movies um this is just feels ingrained uh, not feels it is i mean it is ingrained in the culture of western civilization basically in terms of um you know monuments of literature and so there's ways in which it feels like, well, have you actually read it? Or are you just that familiar with it based <laughs> on the culture? You know, I, that's right. a little hard to say, but you know, specifically the Simpsons version of this is a lot of fun. I feel like I feel bad now that I, cause I knew in saying that, that I was going to steal yours. Are there, are there others that you can, can think that, of? That's, uh, that I'm, that I'm familiar with, uh, no, but, um, but yeah, I think that, uh, Simpsons would probably be the, the, the hinge point for me in terms of a pop culture reference. I mean, Dan Castellaneta, he, he does a fantastic performance Yo, of that. It's, it's excellent. I was going to say, I'll let you, since I stole your Simpsons, 
we'll pretend that you stole the other one that I would have referenced, and that's um, the the late '90s, now mid 2010s returned Christian ska band Five Iron Frenzy um, heavily samples the Raven in there, the untimely death of Brad. So <laughs> you can go, you can go look that one up. I mean, good job, Reed. Good job for referencing that one. I'm impressed. Yeah, I figured you would be. That's why I brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but oh no, God. I mean, it, it's, it. you know, the, the point we're trying to make here, I think, is just it has permeated the culture, you know, yeah. in, in, in the best of ways. Um, Even if all you know is that nevermore refrain. I mean, that right. nevermore refrain echoes beyond where I mean, that, that kind of is the poem <laughs> <laughs> where people don't even know the don't even necessarily know the or understand what the poem's about. They just remember hearing it sometime and they're like, isn't this from the Raven? Um, you know, and that's one thing that when I knew we wanted to have an episode about the Raven specifically, and uh, again, I was so glad that the listeners picked it in terms of one of our first literary works to cover, aside from witches, was I, I know that it can be easy to disconnect from it because, oh yeah, it's so familiar. So because it's so commonplace and so accessible to everybody, people don't necessarily revisit it. And it's a masterful poem. It is my number one favorite poem uh, by, by anyone. I think it's a very, very powerful examination of grief and loss. I think there's a tremendous amount of substance to it. I think you could dissect it line by line almost and get something, something meaty out of it. So yeah. See, I, now I'm going to, I'm going to put, I'm going to put you on the spot because you say something like, it's probably my favorite poem of all time. And I've just got to know inquiring minds want to know, like, is there a list? Is there a read lackey list of best? I mean, you know, you've got your 2017 March. Uh, reworking of your top 200 horror <laughs> movies or movies, you know, for March of 2017. Like, is there, is there a list or are you just like, ah, oh, y'all? Yeah, that's my favorite poem ever. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> like, no, right behind that is a close second is Canterbury Tales. Um, wow, that's hysterical. You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't say epic poems, you know, like you're going to put true, me on the spot. True. With the those. Gilgamesh. <laughs> um, no, to be honest, the reason The Raven gets the number one spot is because it's one of the precious few poems that I keep returning to. I'm not a big poetry lover. As as avid sure. of a reader as I am, I'm not as affectionate towards poem. I think probably my second favorite poem ever would probably have to be All Along the Watchtower by Bob Dylan. So, there you um, go. There you go. See, I was uh, about to counts. say, like, poetry. He's yeah, a Nobel Prize say, winner for literature. He is. So it but, he didn't, but he didn't accept it, right? He, like, didn't even reply? No, Isn't he accepted it. I don't know that he did. We need to look this up. I'm gonna look this up. <laughs> yeah, we need to do up. that. I'm gonna have hey, to well, give him my Bob Dylan fan card credentials if he didn't. If he didn't accept it, we need to. Know. We need to look this up after this. After we record and talk about it next week on the next episode wow. and reference exactly. Anyway, the point you, you made my point that I was about to make for me, and that's that you know we talk specifically. You say you're not a huge poetry fan, but I think if we're all being honest with each other, we're all quite big poetry fans because songwriting is poetry, right? Yeah, you know, no, I agree. No, I, I absolutely agree. You know, I mean, I, I would agree with you that just, I, I rarely just crack open a book of poetry. Um, but, you know, I do enjoy spinning some tunes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so about this one specifically, I had a couple of trivial bits, which we're now going to. Yes. Now time just, for uh, trivial bits. Trivial bits is just a thing that we do yep, now, but it is um, now. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe is uh, a writer who was, he was popular at the time. Uh, he was known in his day, but he was not financially successful. Um, some of that was just sort of the copyright laws of the day. 
some of that was his own poor financial mismanagement. But um, but he did write The Raven specifically because he wanted to write something that would be both critically praised and commercially successful. So he was trying his best to, um, you know, kind of throw everything he possibly could into this poem. And it worked. It brought him tremendous popularity. Now, it did not... Uh, for reasons we've already alluded to, it did not bring him very much financial success. He very much uh, lived and died a poor man, but it, The Raven made him famous. Uh, a lot of his writings prior to The Raven were, you know, largely unknown. He did sell a few poems and a few short stories before that, but it was The Raven that really um, sort of his breakthrough moment in the literary world. But it's a, it, it's it's fascinating to me that it seems like there went through this long stretch of time where people were really acknowledging of its uh, of its critical praiseworthiness. And then it seems like now more and more people are saying, oh, well, is the Raven really that good? Is the Raven really worth, uh, you know, us all studying it in literature, in, in grade school and everything? And I still feel yes, but again, I studied it in literature in grade school, and I feel like it's probably my favorite poem. So naturally, I'm going to be biased towards it. Is it something that you... Again, both of us, I think, would admit not being very avid poetry fans. Where's the Raven in your sort of thought world? Like, do you give it much consideration at all? Is it just something where it's brought up? It's like, oh, oh yeah, it's that's my, the Raven and move on. That's my, that's my favorite poem of all time. I mean, it's number you thief. one. You thief! <laughs> I know that's not true. No, I mean, I like it a lot, and especially revisiting it for this particular episode. I mean, I, I was struck again and uh kudos to sir oberst there's just something fun about the language yes i am a shakespeare fan um i do like well-performed shakespeare and there's something about that sort of heightened old english that just has a fun rhythm and cadence to it that i think i think the reason so many of us would probably say okay we're not and this is illustrated by the conversation we just had like the reason we probably say we don't love poetry so much is because it is heightened language and just, just the, the raw reading of it. Like if you just sat down and, and, and read, you know, a print version of a poem will not do as much as it spoken aloud. I agree. And, and, and the point I'm trying to make there is in terms of songwriting, like just on a page isn't the same as translating it into the medium of, of voice of vocalizing. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, in preparation for this episode, being able to listen to Bill read it just elevated it. And again, I mean, I'm giving him specific props because he, he did us a favor and, and provided this for us. But the point I'm trying to make is simply the reading of it, a, a well executed reading of it just has such a lusciousness to it that makes it so that you're not just like, Oh, I'm just reading rhythm and meter. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, right. it's, it's the ability to take that rhythm and meter and vocalize it in such a way that, oh, wow, that's a neat story being told. So, yeah, I mean, right. I, I think I think pretty highly of this piece. Yeah. And it's it's like something that our mutual college professor Keith always used to say is that a, a play is only, you know, half conceptualized until it's performed. And sure, I feel sure. the same way about poetry that I, I agree with you. I feel like something, you know, in a way that prose just doesn't have the same sort of stigma around it. I think that poets, uh, that poetry really is intended to be performed, is intended to be read aloud, um, which was another reason why we wanted to, to present it to you guys this way, the way that we did. Um, but I also think that this poem specifically, I think it's brilliant in its structure. And I don't want to spend too much time on this because... A, 
this is where two people with theater degrees get into literature. Um, so that's, you know, it's, not a little, necessi- it's, a little, it's at least a little closer cousin than science. <laughs> that's a good point. Um, yeah. But, you know, I know that there are people who devote their lives to the study of poetry and language. And uh, I don't want to, uh, to be honest with you, I don't want to come off sounding too dumb. But I, one of the things that I do really appreciate about this particular poem is uh, two things that I'll mention. Um, and if you have anything to add here, please do. But one thing that I noticed is the, the repetitive use of certain strong consonant sounds that create clicks and ticks, you know, T's and K's that are used repetitively. And it reminds me of like the, the clatter of a bird's claws on like a pane of glass or, or something along the ground. And then there's also juxtaposed that with a lot of long O sounds and uh, long vowel sounds that are sort of evocative of moaning. And I feel like the structure of this language is just very effective for creating, as you're listening to it, if you're being attentive to that, for creating those invocations in your head, that it, it sort of makes you think Sort of puts you on edge a bit um, if you're sure. if you're really engaged with it, which I think is brilliant. And then the the other thing that I'll call out is just the narrative itself. Like it is a narrative poem, which not all poems certainly not all poems are narratives as well. But this is also a, a story poem, and I love how the progression of this. Not only I mean our show is about the intersection between faith and the horror genre, and this is not only a narrative poem, but it's a horror story. This sure. is a man descending into madness because of his grief. And whether or not this raven is some sort of haunting thing that has come to torment him, whether it is, you know, some sort of divine messenger trying to provoke something uh, healthy in him, or whether it is just an animal or a figment of his imagination is largely left to the reader to interpret. But regardless of that, the the poem definitely descends into a very horrific place, which if you really just dissect the language and read what's happening there at the end of the poem is truly horrific, which we'll get into when we get into theme. Um, so I just, I just really think it's brilliant. I think it's, I think it's genius. And I think, I think kids should study it just as yeah. a study of language and as a study of what the spoken word or the written word can do uh, and the power that it can have, even in brevity, like the, bo- the, the Raven is relatively brief to read. You can read it in under 10 minutes and uh, it's just really very, very powerful. Well, and there's something to, you know, in, in reiterating our, even in a novice manner, our, um, appreciation for poetry is like, there's such an economy of language. You know, yeah. there is intentionality in word choice and in structure and in syllable rhythm. You know, there's just, there's just such an intentionality to it that makes it so that you can read it and, and it, or an urgency develops, you know, specifically in this one, um, because it is so such a descent or potential descent, depending on your interpretation of this young man's overwhelming grief. So, yeah, I mean, I yeah. find it, I find it fun. You know, it's, it's fun yeah. to talk about. It's fun to revisit. Um, I'm glad you chose it for us to talk about. And, uh, you know, that, that's, you know, we obviously we're not doing our, our usual newly, newly instituted David S. Pumpkins ratings for this. Um, one of the big things that I want to just go ahead and uh, dive into, if it's okay, is just to go ahead and start diving into theme, because most of this is really very thematically rich. I think it's, um, there's so much going on in this, in this poem, uh, and so many different ways to approach it. 
One of the first things that I wanted to that I and I didn't pre-brief this question for you. So if 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 you need a moment to think about it, I'll I'll give you that moment. But you know, I wonder. I've thought this uh, a time or two as I was reading this. Is I wonder is this uh, kind of an atheistic view of the world that's presented in this poem? And what I mean by that is just sort of the the, the begging and pleading towards the end of it of of re- being reunited with his love or even hope that. His love is okay, that she's, she's dead, but is she okay? Is everything all right? And uh, that, that constant repetitive refrain of nevermore, I don't necessarily for myself think that it's a purely atheistic view of the world, but I, I, I wonder if, if that's just me bringing my personal faith to the text. Is this presenting a world without God? Is it presenting a world without an afterlife? Is it presenting a world where all that awaits us at the end of life is, is void and nothingness? And uh, again, um, I didn't pre-brief you. Yeah, but I'd love yeah, to know yeah, yeah. No, that's that's not a that's not a big question at all. Um, I'm just kidding. That's quite a big question. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's a degree to where you're painting with a much broader brush than necessarily you know the the poem intends. Though that uh, you know, some doctoral student in Poe out there right now is like, oh my god, these guys are idiots. Um, <laughs> Specifically, that bearded one. Um, if anybody with a doctorate who knows that Nathan has a beard is listening know, to this show, I know, I know. It's please, please write us. Yes. Fear of God podcast at gmail.com. Write us. I do, I do think there are echoes throughout of, of religious language. And, you know, yeah. even, even in re listening to it, you know, he begs, is, is there a bomb in Gilead? You know, mm, like mm-hmm. this guy, this guy wants to know. I think more for me personally, in my interpretation, it's more a or an examination of just overwhelming grief. And thus, that's why I say the is it painting an atheistic picture of the world feels like a really broad brush. I think it's painting a very specific moment in time for this character who may not get back up off the floor. You know, I mean, right, right. it's, it's, It's pretty bleak in that regard. Sure. But, and and again, like that would also go to the statement of, well, is he imagining this or not? You know, Mm. if he's imagining it, well, it, it, the potential exists that in the world of this character that it is not an atheistic world. Um, Mm. if it, if it's a real bird, uh, showing up as a, as a devilish proxy saying nevermore. Yeah. Then maybe, maybe that's the case. Mm. Um, yeah. And see, here we, See, this is what happens when you listen to the fear of God. You get into uh, literary criticism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think I think it I, I, that where I sit with it ultimately is that I think it is a template, like we've discussed in other material we've talked about. Like, like specifically, I'm reminded of our conversation about it follows that there's some works of art that are really just templates with which you bring certain perspective, perspective about the world around you, perspective about faith or lack thereof, and you will take away from that material further evidence for your worldview, uh, for sure. your perspective. And I think The Raven is one of those things. I think dependent upon how you approach the material, you will either see evidence of, you know, the lost in a God-filled world, or you'll see evidence of a, quite literally a, a sort of godless place. 
And I think that's well, part of the uh, horror of it. Yeah. I was, okay. uh, let, let me throw something at you here. So I, I didn't pre-brief you on this. So we're just, we're, it's surprises everywhere. Um, <laughs> and I was hesitant to jump, jump into this because it's going to heavily reference uh, a, a secondary source here. Man, this is awesome. We are like totally college papering this episode right now. Hey, feels like old times. Yeah, staying up all night, drinking soda. Um, <laughs> although tonight I am drinking Angry Orchard Hard Cider. Hard, hard cider. See? Uh, I've only had one. Um, <laughs> Listeners are going to start uh, taking a Rolodex of the of the drinks that you enjoy while, yeah. we, while we record. Yes, yes. I'm okay with that. Um, this, and you, I think you'll appreciate the turn I'm about to make here, and I want to chat about this. Um, and and then we can dovetail back into um wherever you might go. So so as I was pondering the raven and like so you're painting with this brush of like God or not God, lost or not lost. Like I look at this and I think of more kind of microscopic this guy. And you know, I asked this question I think on Bone Tomahawk maybe, or I said, Is this a hopeless movie? Oh yeah, Bones and and, yeah. and you said you threw at me cautionary tale. I'm going to do the same thing here for you. Oh no, that um, was the witch. Okay, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. the witch. I knew it was one some somewhere in there. So, to me, my lens I am bringing to this piece of literature is more as cautionary tale. Like I read this, and hmm. this man's attachment, his obsession, his grief, and hear me, I will defend to the day as long your need to experience your grief. Like I'm not right, right. dismissing the need for a person to process adequately their, their grief. Um, right. But clearly this man has stepped beyond grief into potential madness, you know, yeah, and insanity. We've, we've, right. right. We've passed from grief into sorrow, into lament, into madness, into, as you just alluded, potential insanity here. Well, what it made me think of, and I'm going to, I'm going to trail on this for a minute is, um, years ago, I've only read it once. Um, but years ago reading the great divorce by CS Lewis. Oh, right. um, wonderful book. Yeah. Well, one of those characters has stayed with me forever since I read it. And it's the mom Like uh, in, in, in doing a little digging on this, they refer to her as the maternal ghost. And mm. also I can't remember if this is actually in the text, but they, she's referred to it. She has a name. Her name is Pam. I don't mm. know if that, I can't remember if that's actually in the book or not. But if you remember this scene and, and the great divorce, it's about these characters who are entering what they don't know or trying to enter or potentially entering heaven, you know, and yeah. will they, will they based on the attachments they still hold, uh, be able to get in or not? And it's, it's really beautiful, really powerful. Well, specifically this maternal ghost or Pam, <laughs> as we might call her, <laughs> she, her son died 10 years prior. Well, in the 10 years since her son's death, she has maintained his bedroom mm. and she's at the entry point for this heavenly realm. And her husband, who has also passed away, is there greeting her. And she says, where is Michael? That's the son. Where is Michael? Yeah. And um, when am I allowed to see him? And the husband says, there's no question of being allowed. As soon as he can see you, you'll be able to see him. Mm. And there's this really powerful moment where he tells her the first step is the hard one. You will become, they, they use the language of solid and tangible, you know, like these ghostly characters are not solid enough to enter yet. She said, he says, you'll be solid enough for Michael to perceive you when you learn to want someone else besides Michael. Mm. 
And then he follows that with, and I'll finish quoting this here. He says, I don't say more than Michael, not as a beginning. That will come later. He says, it's only the little germ of a desire for God that we need to start the process. Hmm. So it's this really haunting moment where this mother who can't let go of the death of her son a decade later is now being told, this does not mean you forget Michael. This does not mean in uh, the Raven's language, you forget Lenore. Right. It does mean the desire for something better has to exist in order for the process of your healing to begin. Mm. And so, I don't know, I, I, I feel like I'm talking a lot, but you don't know if that resonates with you. I don't know if I'm just pulling this out of left field, but this character in The Raven, who is so stricken with emotional turmoil and sorrow, like, that's what I hear is this sort of cautionary tale sort of example, like, not, again, don't, you're not permitted your grief. You're not permitted to undergo what you need to undergo in order to move past. But right, right. The inability to move past, you know, will in 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 the Raven, it manifests as this insanity-inducing bird. In the Great Divorce, it manifests as this woman being basically denied entry to heaven, saying you you you've got to be able to move past in order to be able to to thrive here. Right, right. That's a lot um, of stuff. <laughs> yeah, but I think that. The infusion of that whole, here's what I, here's part of, a large part of what I took away from what you're saying is that you can try so hard to hold on to what you've lost that you will lose yourself in the process. Yes, yes. And I go back to the text of the Raven where in, in the second stanza, he says, eagerly I wish the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow. So what he's yep. saying there is, I'm desperately trying to find some distraction for yep. this grief that I'm suffering with. And it is in the midst of this desperate effort to seek distraction that he hears the raven outside of his window and then, you know, eventually lets the raven in. And what are we left with by the end of the poem is he said that raven still is sitting, you know, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting. It's this image that that shadow that he let into his house is never going to be lifted, never more going to be lifted specifically. And I do think that that's, I I think that's absolutely a danger in our journey through our own grief, that the harder we try to hold on to something, I think that's something that's fascinating about this poem in general, is that he seems simultaneously to me, the narrator in this poem seems simultaneously desperate to remember and desperate to forget. He seems like both are are happening at the same time. And one of the things that is interesting, I'll bring up another C.S. Lewis book, because it's oddly appropriate in this moment. I didn't expect to, but uh, his book, A Grief Observed, sure. which is his, it's, it's nonfiction, it's very epistolary, he's just writing in a journal you know, a letter to anybody who will read it about traveling through the grief of the loss of his wife to uh, cancer. And he opens the book iconically with, no one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. And it's a powerful understanding of the process that he's about to walk through. But in it, he observed something that I can't quote verbatim, but he, he, he scratched in an idea where he said, I'm scared of forgetting my wife. Now, not that of forgetting that she have existed or not forgetting, uh, you know, what she looked like even or anything like that, but I'll forget her. 
I'll forget sure. the fact that when she was flesh and blood and living and right here in the room with me, she constantly surprised me. Every single day, she would say or do something unexpected that I, I didn't know. And now all I'm left with are the memories of the things that she had done in the past. And I'm going to forget the eminent presence of her being here with me. And I feel like the narrator in The Raven uh, has that same sort of struggle that his Lenore is gone. And he's he's desperate still to have her with him. And he even says towards the end of the poem, he says that, you know, that's one of the demands that he makes of the raven as he demands to say, you know, uh, will you please give me some assurance that on the other side in heaven, uh, he calls it Aiden here, uh, that that on the other side, I'm going to be reunited with her. Give me some uh, assurance somehow that there's something waiting on the other end, and uh, and then of course. He but see, wouldn't you say? But but then wouldn't you say like that's the 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 great divorce example? Like, because see, you just said oh, yes. what yeah. to me sound like two different things. Not let me know there's something else beyond this. It's let me know she's there. Like those are two different things, right? Oh, no, you know? I agree with that. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Yeah. You know, and 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 I do think that 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 tension exists. In the poem, I do think that this narrator is moving through an unhealthy circumstance in his grief. Like he's he's alone for one right, thing. Right. He's absolutely alone, and he's alone by choice because he says to the raven, "That's how I read that line where he says, let my loneliness be unbroken.' Sure. So he wants to be alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but and see, so don't you think he's like, isolated himself? This is fun. So I feel like we should take this a step further. Maybe you'll eventually. You, this is where you're angling anyway. I don't know, but. Because it, there's a way in which I think people could listen to us, listeners could listen to us right now and be like, dang, y'all's cold. You, you don't, you don't, you won't let people just lament their lost loved ones. Like, I, I'm not saying that at all, but I do think, and I don't think that's what you're saying either, but I do think there is this way, there's a way we could spend hours unpacking the, these ideas, you know, what it means to, adequately, healthily move forward after grief has been, in C.S. Lewis's word, observed. Mm. Um, it makes me think of, see, we're just pulling in all the references right now. It makes me think of Arrival, the movie Arrival. Oh, um, yes. And yeah. what a, what a, what a beautiful, beautiful movie basically about if you knew you were going to lose Lenore, if mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis, you knew you were going to lose your wife, if, if we knew the travails we would go through in our life, that might result in loss, would we still go through them? Right. And that particular right. movie, and I think our faith would say that, that life isn't life without all of those things. Yes. Yes. And, 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 and there's a way in which you have to, is this working out your faith with fear and trembling? Mm-hmm. Not as in what do I believe and let me study and pour over that, but as in how will what I believe determine how I survive? how I mm. not just survive, but thrive, you know, like right, right. there's this way in which I feel like we're always not you and I, but like as, as people of faith, we're always like, well, do I believe X about the faith or do I believe Y? Like there's a way in which those sorts of conversations feel moot in the face of just living one's life in faith. Does that make sense? Right. Oh yes. No, absolutely. What I would add to that is it brings up for me all the times that we try to pitch faith as a, as a security against loss. That we sure. try to pitch faith as the, um, 
you know, they'll they'll give lip service to the fact that it's not easy street. But then you listen to them talk about the benefits of following Jesus. And sure enough, it's they're, they're sure trying to sell you easy street or at least a large majority of people are. And it's one of those things where we have to have a healthy understanding of the fact that loss is inevitable. I remember talking to a couple of people who uh, we had some friends. Uh, we weren't terribly close to the friends who suffered this loss, but we were very close to some of their friends who were close to them. There was a couple that we knew who very tragically and sadly um, lost a nine-month-old child to SIDS. And it was something where a lot of people in their immediate circle were really trying to understand why such tragedy had hit this home and why you know, such a devastating loss had taken place so unexpectedly. And I can remember one person particularly reached out to me at one point and asked me, like, what am I supposed to feel? What am I supposed to think about these things? We prayed. We, we asked God for help. This child is going to receive a funeral. What what are we supposed to do? And I don't have even close to the ballpark of an understanding about why any of those things happen. But what I said in response to that person is I said, death is inevitable for each and every one of us, both of those we love and of us ourselves. Death is absolutely inevitable. But what I think our faith gives us hope for, first and foremost, is that death is nothing to be feared. Sure. That even though it hurts like hell, especially when it's in situations like that, where others would be, frankly, rather justified to shake a big fist at God and say, why this? Why, why me? All of those kinds of questions. But I think for us resting back in what we believe about the truth of the gospel is that death is not something to be afraid of. You know, I we had discussed uh, when we did our, our episode about The Exorcist, because we were also kind of tributing the now late William Peter Blatty, he had written a book, a nonfiction book that is mostly memoir, but also talking about the loss of his son, which was a sudden death. And he dedicated the book in a way that uh, just just hit me so hard, even when I just opened the book. Because when he did, you know, for those of you who don't know what I'm referring to, when you open up the text of any book, it's going to be dedicated most of the time to someone's wife or to someone's friend or to someone's family member. Um, but when he opened it up, when you open up this book, which was called Finding Peter, when you open up the book, it says to all of those who have lost a dear loved one to that liar and fraud named death. And the aggressiveness of the language hit me very hard in that here is a man who is stating boldly and I think from his perspective, honestly, death is a liar and death is a fraud because it wants you to believe that it will have the final word and sure. it does not have the final word. Sure. We as Christians believe that. Now, there's a great many people listening to this. Um, well, I don't know if they're listening to this show, but there's a great many people who could be listening to this that may be materialist thinkers that think that this is all there is and that when we die, we are absorbed back into nature, that we just become part of the cycle of uh, nature and natural progression of events. I don't, I don't believe that. I don't agree with that worldview. I don't agree with that perspective. So to me, as a believer, one of my fundamental beliefs is 
not only grief, but pain and suffering and loss, they hurt. They hurt terribly, but they are not going to have the final word. And I will stand on that for as long well, as I possibly And can. don't you think that, don't you think there's this powerful tension that has to exist where, you know, you, I'm, I'm backpedaling a little bit to some stuff you were saying earlier about, you know, this family you were referencing specifically, but each of us have our, you know, our own versions of loss and pain. And, you know, there's a, there's a way in which it's so hard. It's, it's so hard to give advice to people going through those things. It's so hard to receive advice as someone going through those things. Yeah. Uh, because everyone wants there to be, they don't want there to be, but our impulse is let's just move past this, you know, and, and, and hear me, I don't even mean people will say that callously, but, but there's the sentiment of like, let's pat each other on the back. You know, mm-hmm. what, what are, what are the pithy sort of token sort of Christianese we can apply to this situation to try to bring each other comfort that just don't do justice to the pain and the sorrow and the situation. Right. Like, right. I mean, there's, there's a reason the, the title of suffering servant reverberates through history, much less scripture in terms of Jesus's role. Like you don't sign up for this thing, whether we're talking faith in God or just living your life and, and not have some expectation that we're going to hit some serious bumps. Right. You know, whether it's actual death, whether it's disease, whatever. And I, I, I look at the example of Jesus who had his gilly, his, you know, his, his garden moment where if not thy will, you know, take this from me. Right. Um, is there any other way? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like I look at something like that and I think we're all allowed that sort of moment, you know? But what, yeah. but what happens next? You, 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 you have your moment and you may have more than one of those moments. You may right. have dozens of those moments in a specific scenario. But if, if the, if the example of Jesus is worth following at all, you still then with, with the help of the comforter bear up under that pain for as yes. long as you, for as long as that season lasts. Yeah. And for some, that season, can be a very long time for some it's a little less so but i just think there's a way we try we try to apply band-aids to things that just won't and shouldn't have band-aids applied to them you know like right right you 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 know this 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 young man in this story i don't want to belittle his actual pain i would say there is a sense in which like the husband saying to the wife like you don't replace lenore but there has to be something to live for. You've got to move forward in a, in, yeah. in a way that, in a way that honors, but also permits you to live because, you know, this, this in both great divorce and the Raven, there's a lot of language of ghosts. You don't yeah. want to be that ghost. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and we become those ghosts when we let our problems, when we let the pain of our life just destroy us and devastate yeah. us and keep us from being, you may never be whole again. You may have a limp. You know, right, you may, right. you may walk with a limp, you wrestle with the Lord, you walk away with a limp, yeah. but you got to keep, you got to keep walking. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Cause what he does and what we have the tendency to do is, is again, as we've talked about before on the show is demand control, demand hmm. some sense of helping, help, help me to control this situation. When the, when the Raven first comes in, 
the man considers him almost a joke or like, whew, it's just a bird. But by the end of the poem, he is pleading, begging with every inch of his life to this bird that right. like a parrot just keeps repeating the same word over and over again. And he demands evidence and sees this bird as evidence of something. And so he descends into madness because he's desperate to control this this pesky thing that keeps nagging at him about it and he won't surrender and he he digs in and and won't relent i'll mention the scripture verse that i had thought to bring in and then as possibly a way to wind down i'll i'll mention uh one more thing from a grief observed so uh i've taken to i don't know what to say when my friends lose loved ones um i don't know what to write i don't know what to how to console people. Most of the time I try to simply be there and be present and let them talk and listen. And, uh, and, and that's about as much as I try to do. But if I do reference a scripture, one of the ones that I will tend to go to is the one that I'll reference now, um, which is one of my favorite passages of scripture in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21 4 says, He will wipe every tear from their mm. eyes. Mm. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And I heard, please don't laugh too much or derail us, but uh, I heard from an old Petra song <laughs> that there will come a day when death dies. That when when death itself will be consumed by a greater force and when it will be no more. The old order of things, the curse itself, will have passed away. And... One of the things talking about the control that the man and the raven is seeking and talking about our own processes through grief, a grief observed ends in one of the most profoundly beautiful observations that I think I have ever heard or, or read in any book about grief. In the book, C.S. Lewis is talking about he's trying to figure out why his wife smiled when she died, uh, like right before she died. And he talks about, you know, maybe she was joyed at the sight of my presence. Maybe she saw some glimpse of, of heaven, something. He's trying to figure out uh, why she smiled. And towards the end, he comes to the conclusion that it really wasn't ever about him to begin with, that it really wasn't, uh, that he was so wrapped up in himself and making even this person's existence all about his pain. The fact that this person was here was was now all about him. And it ends... Uh, with just the simple line, you know, as she died, she smiled, but not at me. And it's, to me, speaks volumes about when we get into this situation where we're desperate for control, uh, where we're looking for evidence in the world around us, in every single coincidental thing that happens, whether it's, you know, birds flying by at a particular moment or landing on the busts above our door or, you know, take it into your own world, uh, you know, certain coincidental things that have happened and you're desperate to maintain some sort of control, I would just encourage you to do as much as you can in your process of grief to remember that ultimately there are things beyond us that we can take great hope in, that there are things, there are things at work beyond just this life and death cycle and that death will not ultimately have, we believe, will not ultimately have the final word and that there will come a day where the final word on death will be when it itself passes away. And I think there is unspeakable hope in that. I think there's yeah. just profound hope in recognizing that though we endure these things and suffer these things, that 
they will not be forever and possibly will not be for long in the in the scheme of things. Uh, like did that. you have anything else you wanted to No, add? I mean as as well uh, a thought as we're as we're pondering all things lofty and 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 eternal uh I had a dear friend from high school uh, l- about 5 years ago now lost his mother in a very tragic sudden car accident. Hmm. And I, I, I started at that point, you know, as, as someone who I think you would speak to this too, I, you know, who tries to live their faith out in a way that hopefully will not be considered trite or, you know, shallow. Um, something I've begun doing and <laughs> don't hold me to this, every listener out there, but something I've begun doing for Facebook friends uh, or friends of mine who suffer loss like that is I believe, uh, random caveat, I believe kind of all truth is God's truth and the Lord can use things other than specifically scripture references to minister and, and heal. And, and I was, well, and I'll cite this specifically. When I lost my grandmother about seven or eight years ago, this, this was very powerful to me. And it was, see, we're using all these references today, um, from Lord of the Rings. It was Tolkien mm. and it's, uh, the scene of Gandalf and Pippin on the wall during the battle of Gondor and they think all is lost. And, you know, Pippin is articulating, thinking the end is here and, and, and there, there you go. And, and Gandalf says the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. He says the gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And this is the, the best part. He says, and then you see it. And Pippin says, what Gandalf? See what? And Gandalf just says, white shores and beyond a far green country under a swift sunrise. And, and the, the moment ends with Pippin quietly saying, well, that isn't so bad. And Gandalf says, no, no, it isn't. And that, that just gives me a great, comfort and hope, you know, and, and, and sort of reinforces, I think, kind of what we're talking about here that, you know, you, 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 you bear up under the weight of things, knowing that you have your Gandalf, you have Christ, the suffering servant right there with you, who will say to you, this is what is to come. And you can say that that doesn't sound bad at all. Mm -hmm. And he'll say, no, it is, it isn't. Amen to that. <laughs> On that note. Um, well, listeners, thank you so much for um, taking this journey with us. And uh, we, we hope you enjoy the, um, the, the reading by Bill Oberst Jr. I want to thank him again for participating in this in his, in his very special way. And if you have anything that you'd like to say about this, uh, you want to correct us on our literary references, you want to educate us on, uh, <laughs> on all of the ways in which, uh, we didn't bring up this topic and that topic, then please feel free. You can do so in a variety of ways because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but it is nevermore the end of the conversation. Nice. We, uh, the, probably the easiest way to reach us is through Twitter. Nathan, what is our Twitter handle? At the fear of God. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us there. You can leave comments on our posts or you can post there yourself. You can go to morethanonelesson.com and leave a comment on this official post. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter at Reed Lackey. And Nathan, where can they find you on Twitter besides at the fear of God? At the Nathan Ralph. 
And uh, you could also please go and leave us an iTunes review. Um, if you've enjoyed this content or enjoy what we what we produce every week, we would really appreciate some more iTunes reviews. So pop over there and say some good things about us. Tell your friends about us. And uh, lastly, but not least, you can email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. We would really love to hear from each and every one of you. And uh, you can also tune into social media to see where we're going to be going next week. Um, I'm not going to officially say here because we... Recent events might change up uh, our lineup. So look to social media to see where we're going to be going next week. And we will see you then. Nathan, as always, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I really appreciate it. Likewise, my friend. We'll catch you guys next week. See you then. Nevermore.